Hello and welcome to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and for today's episode I sat down with Dr. Caroline Klaraval, who is the WHO Country Office Representative in Kazakhstan. Now at the time of recording she was actually the WHO Health Emergencies Lead in Kiev in the Ukraine. She's also previously worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross as well as being a research fellow at the Institute of Biomedical Ethics at the University of Zurich. And for today's episode, I asked her questions about her experiences regarding the ethics of humanitarian action. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. So welcome and thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk with me about this. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a privilege to be here with you today. So I've mentioned there that you currently work for the WHO in Kiev and you've also worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross. And those are some of the big organizations that we first think of when we think humanitarian action. So what does your work and did your work involve for these organizations? So I worked for a decade with International Committee of the Red Cross and I was in charge of managing large-scale relief operations in Africa, Middle East and Asia, always in countries affected by conflict. That's the particularity. Since I've joined WHO in 2015, first I started off working at WHO at the regional office in the Middle East, and I was looking after the emergencies programs, but particularly from a health care service provision perspective. And I'm doing the same in Ukraine. Again, essentially looking after countries affected by conflict and the consequences these conflicts have on the provision of healthcare services to people affected by the disasters. And what are some of the biggest ethical challenges that you face in your humanitarian work and the associated responses to it? Mm, it's a good question. Um, one of the key one is the lack of access of available resources in terms of finances as well as qualified human resources. But that is true whether from the perspective of the local authorities or the local health systems, but also for the different organizations. So we're just constantly confronted with the requirement having to allocate our resources in a fair manner. And that is not always possible and requires a lot of um, efforts from our side, a lot of convincing and um, a lot of thinking to make sure that what we do is on one side as cost-effective as possible and on the other side of uh, the highest quality as well as um, sustainable and uh, allows us to make sure that we improve access to quality healthcare services for people affected by conflict at any time. And I heard you speak a little bit more about your work earlier today. And you mentioned that in terms of discussing these kind of ethical issues, it potentially happens or there's more space for that in academic circles currently than in the humanitarian 
um, in the humanitarian circles. Is is that a correct assessment of what of of what you said earlier today? Yes, indeed. Um, what I witnessed so far is that there's a greater interest in reviewing or in critically assessing or critically thinking through what humanitarian agencies are doing on the ground in the in academia versus in the different organizations. There is improvement, things have changed over the past 10 years, I would say, but not to the same level in every organization, and not all of them are equally keen on pushing this agenda further. Some even totally ignore it, and um, it's very difficult for professionals or humanitarian aid workers that have a background in ethics to bring that interest across and to promote it in-house. Right, and so you've developed this ethical model for humanitarian responses. Is that sort of in response to to the sort of lack of widespread systematic conversation in, in the sector? Yes, indeed. So the 10-step um, um, model that we've developed in the paper called Challenging Operations was developed in the aftermath of some of the more difficult situations that I was confronted with whilst working in the field. There were situations where um, that pushed me to my limits and where I thought that what we were doing was ethically not justified. But I could not at that point pin down or illustrate the issues that I was confronted with. With a bit of reflection, I developed that model with the support of my professor, Nic Professor Nicola Bilandono. And it is a tool that allows us to approach this issue of making decisions in humanitarian area in a more structured and a more transparent manner. This ultimately allows us to then monitor the effect our decisions have had in hindsight and to improve ultimately um, program programmatic outcomes for the people affected by conflict. So you've mentioned there that there's 10 parts to your model um, and what are the, the main messages of the model? What are you trying to get organizations to think about and think through when they're considering humanitarian action? So the 10 parts of the model are, first part is gathering the evidence, and I'm a firm defender of evidence-based interventions. And this is particularly true for um, health interventions in the area of healthcare um, and or providing healthcare services. Then it's also important for us to develop the different and define the val values and norms and principles that we abide by, to define the arguments that we're confronted with, and then to look at the different options that we have. Um, once we've defined the different options that we have, we, uh, we would suggest to go into a process where we weigh those options and where we discuss which one would be the one that we would prefer, and then we elaborate the decisions, but the seventh point highlights the necessity to justify why we decided on that particular option. Let's assume you have got an ethical issue. Um, you have three different options. You decide that you take option B. But uh, what we are asking 
what we are suggesting is that option B is then that we justify why we chose option B over option A and C. And that we then implement it and that we then, in the end, monitor the impact of that decision. So, in a nutshell, the advantages of that 10-step approach is that it provides a structure, it promotes transparency, it ensures monitoring of the decisions and their impact, it promotes assessing and assessment of the decisions, and it ultimately it improves um, the results of the program outcomes. So it's just sort of a structured way of looking at why we do what we do and um, to make sure that these decisions are not just taken like that, but, but they're thought through. Because it's the only way, if you put them down in, in a transparent way, it's the only way that we can then ultimately assess or monitor or decide whether yes or no what we decided back in the days was actually the right way forward. This is all the more important in situations where we have got a high turnover of staff. Most of the time we run into a, um, a context or a country and we don't know why certain decisions were taken. Oftentimes they were actually good decisions and not necessarily wrong decisions, but if you cannot um, backtrack or trace the logic behind them um, in situations of conflict, the situation changes very quickly. You're then a bit lost and uh, you don't understand the logic of what was decided. And I believe it's always important to put things back into context. And um, yes. And as far as I'm aware, John Hopkins University sort of drew on this model in one of its more recent reports. So can you just tell me a little bit about how they were using that model um, and what they were what they were doing with it? It was very funny. So if I remember well, is um, they were doing a literature review, looking at what are the different models that were out there and identified two. One of them was our 10 steps approach model uh, that we wrote up in the challenging operations paper and another one was done by another set of scholars uh, from Canada, McGill University. And interestingly enough is they've applied both frameworks in the context of Syria and with Syrian healthcare workers. Um, obviously because of lack of access to Syria they applied it in, in Turkey, Gaziantep, but um, they were apparently the physicians appreciated the tools and they were very fond of them. And then uh, Hopkins suggested a few recommendations on how to change them a little bit. But the message here is that this tool was developed based on a field experience, a decade in the field. What I was thrilled about was to hear that um, researchers from Johns Hopkins thought that it was an interesting tool and applied it to the Syrian context. And what made me even happier was that Syrian physicians or physicians working in the area of Gaziantep with Syrian refugees thought that it made a difference to the way they were managing their responses. And so ultimately we could see that what we had developed actually made a difference and contributed to improving the responses of healthcare workers in countries affected by conflict. And another thing that you've contributed to and drew on your experience in the field was in your book chapter, Stop Missing the Point, which is in the book Humanitarian Action and Ethics. 
um, which I'll link to in the show notes later. And in that chapter, you talk about what you call the business model of humanitarian ethics. And you relate that back to a few things such as the need for humanitarian organizations to raise a lot of money um, to make those resources available that you previously mentioned there was a scarcity of. And, um, and also another part of that is that sometimes there's a partnership between not-for-profit and for-profit organizations. Um, so how do those kind of things, the, you know, having to raise money and seeing where the money comes from and partnering up with other organizations, how can that complicate the picture? So if you look at how humanitarian resources are being raised, much of the fundraising is either earmarked or non-earmarked. I have an, an issue with, not, with earmarked funding because this is when the donor dictates where I can spend the money or with, in what kind of activity I have to invest the money. I understand that it's important that the donors or the partners, as others would call them, are involved. That sometimes we can counterbalance these decisions and ensure a sort of a, a fair and just approach to assisting people affected by conflict because there's always two parties to the conflict, at least, if not more. And a fragmented response is not good enough. So if the funds are earmarked for a specific group or a specific ethnic group or a specific religious group or a specific area of the country, then aid agencies run into the issue, the difficulty to provide impartial, independent and fair support to all the parties or all the people affected by the conflict. In that situation... Um, we ought to promote and strengthen and further that debate with the donors. Nowadays it's essential that humanitarian aid agencies are very clear about the funds they ask for and the funds that they accept. And I also believe that there is a need for further debate with the different aid agencies and between the different aid agencies and the donors or partners, as we might call them as well, in order to ensure that the aid, the financial support, is not as earmarked as it is today because it does not strengthen or support a fair and just approach to assisting people affected by conflict. So so there's, in your eyes, need for more transparency, again, in, in that process. There is particularly need for less control and for more trust. And so far that, for example, if aid is required on two sides of a front line, that it's up to the agency to decide on which, where, on which side the needs are greater. And it should be a needs-based discourse and not a politically driven debate. Okay, that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense to an, to an outsider, but I imagine that it's a lot more complicated behind the scenes to, to structure yes. it in that way. Um, and in that same chapter, you also talk about the difficulty of staffing humanitarian organizations or the workers on the ground in terms of 
the skills and the um, qualities that people need to have. So this idea of do we need people who are more technically inclined or do we need more great managers and how do we train people? Is there a sort of standard curriculum that every humanitarian worker needs to go through to get the skills that they need? So could you tell us a little bit more about this and, and potentially the difficulties associated with that? It's an interesting debate because it goes back and forth. There are periods where aid agencies hire managers and then there's periods where aid agencies hire technical staff. I'm a bit more nuanced in this approach. I believe that um, we have to have the right person in the right job and that's not necessarily a simple task to achieve. In recent years I've come to the conclusion that ideally we would have outstanding managers in charge of highly qualified technical staff. Nevertheless, the managers can't only be managing, they also have to have a minimum amount of knowledge of technical know-how in the area that they're working in. Simply because for them to manage the experts they have to be aware of the difficulty and the degree to which the experts or what they can contribute to the operations. And it's only, it's unless they understand how valuable this expertise is, they will never ever be able to manage them appropriately. Another point that I've highlighted in the book is this need to have people that are actually capable of leading debates and to have ethical training or training in ethics. Why does that matter? This matters simply because the issues that we're confronted with are not necessarily only of managerial, logistic or administrative nature. Many of them are actually ethical dilemmas. And it requires a skilled person to find out what that means and um, to identify an issue as an ethical issue, to be able to also then address it in an appropriate way in order to come to a solution. So it's not, you have to be, you have to have a multidisciplinary background as a manager of large scale relief operations. And then only if you're capable of pulling together and or getting the best out of your staff and allocating your resources in the most optimal way and in a transparent fashion, then only you can hope to do the best for the most in the country where you work. I can only imagine that that must be an incredibly challenging environment to work in, in particular if you're faced with these ethical dilemmas where there's no clear way forward. So yeah, I'm just in awe. What, what I'd like to add to this is if you are an experienced humanitarian worker and if you've got the expertise on how to manage these, many of these situations can be, or many of these Solutions can be found fairly easily, simply because you know. And that's the experience that speaks, that's the expertise that speaks. But then when you're confronted with a new issue that you've not yet had the opportunity to think through, then you have to remain extremely humble. You can ask for help. Um, and that's why I'm always very fond of reaching out to colleagues and friends from other disciplines, be they lawyers, philosophers, physicians, bioethicists, the more the merrier. And I do consult. And I, I've learned to ask for help in life. And when I'm stuck, I reach out 
to my colleagues or academics, anyone, in order to gain greater insight, to see different viewpoints, and to then assess what would be the best way forward. Because there's simply moments where you don't know what's right or what's wrong. But that moment, humility and reaching out for guidance and other viewpoints and thoughts is maybe the best way forward. But I believe, just to say so much, is there's different initiatives that are popping up now. At least there is sort of a momentum within the humanitarian world where not only important agencies such as the ICLC, MSF and some of the UN bodies start to engage in that theme much more, but there's also academics, um, be it in Canada, the US, the UK and elsewhere, that are focusing on that subject much more. So there's actually hope because I do believe that we can only move forward or grow if we do this as a community, because we have not yet reached the critical mass of um, humanitarian aid workers or academics or any other professional that are interested enough in that subject to level things up. I would definitely recommend to students or healthcare workers or humanitarian actors to proactively reach out to some of the scholars and some of some of us, because uh, I think we are there to support each other. And that sense of entraide, as we would say in French, is important and needs to be further promoted. Well, thank you so incredibly much um, for your time. And I guess for giving me a sense of hope there as well, that, <laughs> that we were moving in a certain direction with thinking about these issues. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Rebecca. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.